Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome to The Black Athlete. In this episode of The Black Athlete, Derek and I will discuss the hottest topic in black sports, soccer. We'll break down the brief history of the game, discuss the diaspora, migration, and the World Cup. We'll also dive into an important question. Where are our black players? So let's get started. So Derek, who do you have in this World Cup finals? France. France? Like just France? Is there's no other reason why? I mean, the easy answer is that uh, France is the most diverse team out. They have the most attractive, a more attractive style of play. Uh, and I'm just rooting for those young brothers, to be honest, man. They, they, they got a lot of swag, a lot of character, a lot of charisma. Uh, and they're exciting to watch. Right, right. So I knew that was the answer, right? Eventually we'd get there. You're rooting for the young brothers, as, as we all are. And that's the thing about this, this World Cup, right? This is really the first World Cup that I've watched at the same time watching social media. And the, one of the coolest parts about it is that there's this overwhelming joy amongst, I don't know, for lack of a better term, black Twitter of, of those who are watching soccer celebrating for, uh, quote unquote, the black teams. Right. Now, I, I mean, some of this, this is the first World Cup for me, at least on social media. So I think you're right. And, and seeing the, the, and to me, it's interesting hearing folks talk about soccer for the first time and recognizing um, some of the intricacies of the game and, and the way that the diversity plays out. For example, seeing uh, people recognize that there are black players on Sweden or a black player for Switzerland. Uh, that's something that, you know, is always exciting for, for people who are new to the game. Right. And, and that brother from Belgium, I believe the, the LeBron James was soccer, as I dubbed him. Right? <laughs> exactly. Um, but what gets me is that that's like, you know, watching the Olympics, you always kind of did that. Right. You watch the track and field. Right. And then you'd see a brother and you'd be like, oh, OK, we're going to we're going to root for that brother. And now it's like I have this in soccer and it's been a, been a fun experience. And, and it's not like I don't watch when there's no brothers on the on, on the field or, or on the on the pitch or whatever they call it. Um, see, I'm not a soccer guy, um, but it's just when they're there, you're right. It brings something out of it. And as an academic, too, then you start trying to figure out like patterns of migration. You want to talk about the diaspora. So I'm like totally into the game, watching it as entertainment value, but also for like an academic purpose. Oh, exactly. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, I always I tell students of mine all the time in, in the sports classes that I learned as, as much about the diaspora watching soccer as a young person, uh, you know, uh, learning, um, trying to figure out and asking questions about how did people who look like myself get into a variety of different countries, whether it's Brazil, uh, Colombia, um, looking at France or England. Um, so, you know, really trying to figure out how, um, you know, the diaspora before that was a conceptual, con you know, a concept that we discussed in class and a thematic organization. It was something that I watched on TV looking for players who looked like me when I was a kid. Right, right. And and that's the other thing, too, teaching about sports. So I teach a, a black sports class, a black athlete class and and teaching about it. I've learned a lot about soccer. And what amazes me is that there's a lot 
more information out there on soccer, on, on black soccer players, on, on African soccer, on, on, on the migration from, you know, players in Africa to Europe into the soccer league on the history of colonialism and soccer in Africa and all these other parts. And I'm just totally fascinated by, and I'm ready like to almost switch sports, right. Kind of switch over from American football to soccer. Um, and on that note, I I've heard a rumor that, that you played college soccer. I mean, I, uh, was on a college soccer team. Uh, I, I, I sat the bench, um, for a lot of games. Uh, I did letter and I have a few stats at the university of Maryland back in the day. Uh, but I, you know, I grew up playing soccer. I mean, um, you know, I, it's funny watching Twitter talking, you know, seeing people, folks like yourself, like, Oh, this is kind of like, like really the first world cup. And I, I remember watching the world cup in, in 1982 for sure. And in 1986, definitely, uh, in Spanish, because that was the only way you could get World Cup coverage was on, you know, uh, on some random channel that would show the games in Spanish. Uh, and to watch where it's come, uh, having gone to World Cup games in 94 when it was in the U.S. Uh, and so, you know, soccer is always a great to me. It's always a great time because so many fans, especially especially American black folks in the United States, uh, are always like surprised by the number of black people who are playing the game uh, across the world. And as you pointed out with your LeBron James of soccer, how athletic and talented and skilled these brothers are. And so I think that some of that is the way we treat soccer in the U.S., but I, I always say get a kick out of it. Right. And we're going to we're going to definitely come back to that at the end. But one of those days when we talk about uh, soccer brothers, talent and athleticism, what always comes up is when we watch our U.S. teams like, wow, like what if LeBron played soccer, which is really a lot of people is like, where are black athletes playing soccer? But but we'll, we'll come back to that. But one of the things I want to push you on is is that your amazing personal soccer story. Um, do I have this right? You grew up in Kentucky playing soccer. Yes, yes, yes. I grew up in Kentucky playing soccer uh, uh, in the 1980s, early 90s. And, uh, you know, it was it was interesting. It was uh, I played club soccer. I played the pay for play system. Um, I, I was I was pretty good. I, I, I always say it's about timing. I was able to get to Maryland in part because the information was not as good. <laughs> um and so I, you know, I could I could convince people that I could play probably better than I was, um, but I wasn't bad, and I spent a lot of time doing it. So yeah, I went. I was grew up in Kentucky, played, uh, traveled all throughout the Midwest uh, in Ohio and Indiana, Tennessee, um, uh, West Virginia, Virginia, uh, playing all kinds of teams from the age of ten till I was about eighteen before I went to college. Man, that's that's tremendous. I don't think I made it past. AYSO third grade, uh, some girl named Lacey kicked me in the shins and I didn't have shin guards and, and that was it for me. Uh, but now, now I got little kids and that's all they do is, is, is kicking the shins and wear shin guards. So, so we're good on that. I think they'll make it to the fourth grade. That's good. Um, <laughs> but, but changing, uh, course here, what, what we do here at the black athlete is, is break down the history of what we're seeing, right? So we take some modern day stuff and, and then we'll put it in the historical context. So let's, let's tell the listeners some historical context about soccer, not only about colonial, colonialism, migration, the diaspora, but also, uh, soccer in the U S like black soccer in the U S. I mean, so what you have in the U.S., it, it, soccer in general is a product of, of you know, African 
participation is often a product of colonialism, right? That the 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 English in particular, but the Western nations, France, England, Belgium, bring the game as part of their colonial project. The soldiers, the missionaries played, introduced the sport as a way of placating and interesting kind of uh, the local populations. Um, and so, so players of color have been part of been taking and learning the game as long as there has been colonialism. And so what we're seeing, at least in the modern World Cup sense, to kind of jump a big a jump ahead to the con is migration, right? That that in the case of France and England, uh, you're seeing uh that the colonial subjects have migrated, the parents have migrated back to the metropole, their children are English or French citizens, and they've been extremely talented. And because of the professional system, they've been identified as talented young players and they've worked their way up to the highest levels, obviously, the national team. And so the national team is more diverse than the population and often more diverse than the way the population envisions itself. Right In the U.S., the U.S. is slightly different um, for a couple of reasons. One is that the United States uh, never had the systematic and, and the depth um, professional, you know, in terms of a professionalized uh, soccer league or soccer system uh, at the local level. So local professional teams identify talent when you're 10, when you're playing for that youth league, right? When you got kicked in the shins, if, if you were able to dodge uh, that young girl and be, and score some goals, someone may say, Lewis has talent. We should identify him and bring him into our club system around the age of 10, uh, if he's if you matriculate from there every two years, you get to go up to the next level. And if you're really good, you uh, get sold. Your rights get sold to a bigger club. Uh, and then the, the team that um, first initially found you gets a percentage. And so that professional system allows for migrants to really buy into the system. In the U.S., we have an amateur system. So our system is much like college sports, right? Amateurism is the goal. People play for fun. Professional sports have never been able to to take hold. And so soccer has been mostly the pur- the purview of uh, recreational local teams. Some of those would be what we think of as semi-pro or college teams. Right. Um, and so just speaking on that, we'll, we'll go there now, is uh, there is a history, though, in the U.S. And, and some of the history we talk about of black soccer players in the U.S. is very similar to what we talk about in, in, in Africa or in these uh, uh, you know, England or France, where where these mig- migrants, black migrants, are coming in and and playing soccer, and what we see here, and like I was just doing a lot of research, uh, you know, over the last couple of days, uh, to to prepare myself, is that when you read the black press and you talk about soccer, it's always from the perspective, usually of you have the the Caribbean players or the West Indian players that you talk about or the black Latin American players. Mm-hmm. And so when you read the black class, what they're making the distinction is like, look, these young black players play, we're going to call them, you know, they're black, but you know, the black American fans aren't really showing up to the game. Um, for those listeners who are interested, there are a couple teams, all black teams in New York. There's the Maroons who were popular in the 1920s and, and 1930s. Um, there were the Falcons who were popular in the thirties and the, and, and the forties. And these are all black teams, or if you want to search databases, all, all you know, colored soccer teams, uh, largely made up of Caribbean and West Indian players. And I was reading this article uh, from 1930 and they were talking about Howard and and we'll get into more of that in, in a bit which had a, a soccer team 
founded by a, an, an African student, right? Because mm-hmm. these, these students want something to do too. Um, and they were talking about the possibility of Howard playing the Maroons, this amateur team, as you mentioned in, in 1930s. And they couldn't play because the Maroons were an amateur team. Um, mm-hmm. And what's going on with the Maroons is that they don't take gate receipts. And so Howard is, is even though it's a college and it's, you know, you're not supposed to make money as these teams travel to, to make money. And there was no money in the game. So they would front all the expensive and get nothing out of it. Um, and the other thing that came out of this article from 1930 is that essentially the black newspapers say, well, black fans aren't, aren't really going to these games anyway. And so Howard's looking at this and saying, this is a, a lose, lose situation for us. Um, but another point that the article brings out that's fascinating to me is that the point you made about amateurism is that a lot of these black players, they just didn't have time to invest in soccer, right? Um, mm-hmm. That leisure time that you need to, to, to be able to play, to be good. And what the article is saying is like, look, there's this team, the Maroons is on an all-white league. The Falcons were eventually in the all-white league. And a lot of times they're not necessarily beating these white teams because they don't have the time to, to practice right all their players uh to put 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 in that effort and to be good but they're still in these leagues and i think that's what's important that that there's always been black soccer players black teams in america you can find sprinkling of, of them so so it's there um but as we mentioned earlier is that football takes hold in America. If we're comparing the two between soccer and and football for black America, football takes hold. Um, It goes to the HBCUs earlier. Uh, You see black players playing locally in their, in their teams. Um, So this is, you know, we have an opportunity to see black soccer in America, but it just doesn't develop uh, because there's no major buy-in from the local African-American population. Yeah, I mean, I think soccer is an excellent way to to introduce. So you can about how we talk about this in class, introduce like the kind of the interesting divisions. Like, so we use black, you know, we talk about this as a podcast as a black athlete, as an all encompassing black that includes the diaspora. But when you think about a sport like soccer, really, what you're talking about is differentiating between African Americans and uh, and Afro Caribbeans and Afro Latinos, right? In terms of their participation in a in a, in a sport, right? Uh, and so very few African-Americans have the historical contacts or the familiarity with the game to be um, extremely interested in either watching or participating in. So like when you look in those databases, you don't see a lot of black high schools in Pittsburgh or Chicago or Washington, D.C. talking about soccer unless they have a large number of West Indian students. Right. And and that's the I think this is a point that we can make about then and today is that when you do, however, find a very good soccer player, as long mm-hmm. as he's black, the black press will celebrate him. Absolutely. Uh, and so in the in a yeah, in the late nineteen twenties, Uruguay came through with a brother and, and they and Uruguay played in Harlem and, and black and you know, black folks came to 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 the soccer game and, and the black press picked it up. And in nineteen forty six we we get our first black soccer star, a, a guy by the name of Gil Heron, who who is Gil Scott Heron's dad, right? And here's he's a Jamaican immigrant who comes to Cleveland and then goes to the war during World War II, fights in the Canadian Air Force, comes home, comes to Detroit, and as you said before, plays amateur soccer, and then a local professional team, the Detroit Wolverines, pick him up, and he's in. If you look at the Detroit Free Press, there's this uh, 
you know, building up about him. Like there's this Negro soccer player on the Michigan or Detroit Wolverines who's scoring all these goals. And then all of a sudden the black press puts it up and they don't care that he's from Jamaica. They just care that he's black and they celebrate him. Uh, 1947, Ebony has an article calling him the Babe Ruth of soccer. Um, mm-hmm. And that year, Gil Heron actually uh, is bought from the Detroit Wolverines to uh, a team in Chicago. And get this. The brother is the best player in the league, and he's only making $25 a game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so this is the thing, right? This is, you know, the professionalization. Professional soccer has none of, even in the early 40s, has lacks, I mean, trails baseball and football. Uh, and even basketball, which was in its infant stages in the early 40s, uh, in terms of its uh, the kind of money that you could make. Um, even, even when all those sports... Uh, required you to work uh, another job unless you were someone like Babe Ruth for uh, an earlier period, right? Um, you, you know, you still work two jobs or the, in the summer and the off season. Soccer was one that even in season you worked another job. <laughs> right. No, he was he was at the factory, right? So he'd work his job at the factory in Detroit, and then he would go play at his professional soccer games, uh, leading the league in scoring. All right, and then going back to to work, and that's another thing, right? Like, um, you know, if you're a black American at that time, there's, you know, sports. I'm not saying that there's no leisure in sports. Cause that, that's definitely part of it. You see black folks playing bowling, playing golf all the time. But if you're looking to make a career at that time in America, there's professional soccer leagues, but they're, the pay is not what's football becoming. Right. Or, you know, getting that opportunity to go to that PWI or, you know, and go to college, you know, with that GIE bill and play basketball, um, Baseball's newly integrated at that time. So when 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 Gil Scott or Gil Heron is the star, well, Jackie Robinson is there too. So there's no way that you're going to be a young brother be like, oh, I want to be like Gil Heron. No, Jackie Robinson, you want to be like Jackie Robinson. And so that's, I think that's part of it too, right? When we get to this conversation 70 years later and we're like, you know, where is the black soccer player? Part of that is, you know, when when you get your first black superstar here, there's Jackie Robinson too. Right. And, and, and even at the time, right? Like what you're also talking about is when you're making $25 a game, you're still making less than like the lower levels of the Negro league, right? You could play in Birmingham and make more money than that. Um, and so I think that's the other piece as well. Right. So I think that, that all those variables, you know, baseball is extremely popular in the 1940s. Uh, football is coming on, uh, because of its influences in the colleges, uh, in urban centers across the North Pittsburgh, New York, Chicago, we start to see the rise of basketball starting to play out. Uh, and so, you know, uh, African-American participation in soccer is still small because of these these kind of other variables. But for for West Indians, right, for, for Black Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latinos, soccer is still their first love. And so for them, they have they have little experience in these other sports. And so for them, soccer is still something that they do for fun and that these small professional opportunities are just that, you know, additional opportunities to the other kinds of jobs that they would have taken, uh, whether they played or not. They were still going to play on the weekend, et cetera. Right. And speaking of West Indians and, and black migrants, that's actually how we get soccer at HBCUs. And, and you're an HBCU guy. You got a uh, a book coming out on, on black football and HBCU. Could, so could you say a little bit more? On, on soccer there and and i believe 
also rumor has it you had an opportunity to play at a soccer at HBCU. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, HBCUs have had, I mean, so Howard had soccer, Lincoln, uh, Hampton had soccer, Howard had soccer in the 1920s and 1930s, Lincoln had, I mean, uh, Hampton had it in the 1930s as well. Um, and so these West Indian students, right, as they're coming and taking opportunities and African students are taking opportunities to attend HBCUs uh, in the United States, one of the things that they bring with them is this interest. And as those numbers increase, you start to see the development of, of college soccer teams. Um, one of the interesting questions, and we talked about this in, in, in the kind of the prep for the, for the podcast, is that, you know, it's not always clear who they played, right? Like, it's not clear who Hampton, I mean, uh, who Howard consistently played. And I think that article that you discussed earlier from 1930 about them wanting to play the Maroons as all black team, it speaks to the challenges that they had, that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't go down the road and play the University of Maryland soccer team uh, because of the way the the strictures of segregation. Uh, And so there, there's some other kinds of unique challenges. And so what you begin to see is that they take on uh, a handful of other HBCUs, but they also take on a couple of these pro, what we think of as pro-am team, right? Professional amateur teams of of local people in a community who develop a team uh, of soccer uh, in an area, much like the New York Maroons that you discussed earlier. And so HBCUs, but by the 1960s and 1970s, Howard is a powerhouse, right? Uh, Mostly relying on Caribbean students to come uh, to Howard and, and really field their soccer team. Uh, and Howard wins a championship in 71 and it is taken away through some NCAA uh, dubious claims. And then they win again in 74. Um, I had the opportunity to attend Alabama A&M. Uh, when I was coming through and at the time, like I would have been like only the second African-American player on the team uh, of the team of 18. But I, I really was, I mean, I was 50, 50 between there and Maryland. Uh, and I just really liked the idea of playing for an HBCU and it was good, but they had so many different kinds. I remember the challenges, right. Is that, you know, teams didn't want to play them. Um, they recruited at, they, most of their recruits were international uh, and so there was a lot of, you know, a lot of internal things that I see now as a scholar of sports uh, that I didn't see as a, as a teenager trying to make a decision. And in fact, before we end, Alabama A&M actually ended their soccer program a few years ago. Oh, wow. Um, speaking yeah. about that, right. And, and, and part of it, my guess is just, just the, the math and the funding didn't work out. So let's talk about that funding because whenever we have a conversation of uh, the world cup, right. We talk about this is, is, is we see that our U S team one this year is not in it. And, and two generally lacks the athleticism, meaning a lot of black players. And, and last time we had to go and get like the foreign born black players. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that, that was controversial in, in itself, not for me, but for, for other people. But why is it like, what is our current soccer system? Because both of us have young kids and, and both of us, I'm sure your kids have played soccer. My kids have played soccer. And then we've heard about the club and how much it, you know, what's going on there. So why is it that there are a, a lack of black players playing soccer today for the U S and what is that solution? If we really care about that to, to try to foster this game. So I think there's two things. I think that, um, and and I want to, I don't want to conflate these terms, right? So I think that there, there are two things happening. One is that American soccer is a 
distinctly middle class sport. It is what we call pay for play. And what that means is that uh, in order to play the highest competitive amateur soccer, what we call club soccer, you need to be a part of a club team. In order to join a club team, if you make if you're talented enough, your son or daughter's talented enough to make a club team, then you have to pay a club fee. This is how they pay for coaches. This is how they rent fields. And each player on the team has to pay a certain amount. Uh, and typically the average is between five and eight thousand dollars. And some clubs can run as high as ten thousand dollars. And this is before you pay for uniforms. This is before you pay for travel, hotels, meals, all these other things that come along with being a, a, a playing club soccer. And so that system, uh, I think impoverishes uh, working class people in general, right? Of which African-Americans, Latinos, uh, immigrants, Afro uh, West Indians, Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latinos, anyone of, of poor whites who are interested in soccer and may be talented, all those folks are, are not advantaged, uh, face a disadvantage, excuse me, uh, in this pay for play system. And this is very different than the US and than the rest of the world, right? And as I spent mentioned earlier, the rest of the world operates where they have a professional system in which you your your local team, right? Your local team uh, in Grand Rapids uh, may be a what we think of as a semi-pro team and their job is to find the talented players in their area. And if your son or daughter, if your son will use men's soccer since it's the men's World Cup, if your son is talented, then a larger team, a Detroit team may buy his rights. Well, that's how they, that's how that local club, they don't rely on you paying. They rely on finding players. And so to sell the rights. And if your son makes it all the way to Juventus or uh, to England in the premier league, and they have a big transfer fee that the local grand Rapids club would get a percentage. In fact, I was talking to one of the soccer coaches here, uh, uh, at the college, and he was saying that uh, the the young American Tsar Pusilig, uh, if he uh, if we had a system like Europe, that his local club in Pennsylvania would have gotten a six figure check because of the contract he signed with Borussia Dortmund. Right, right, and so so what you're getting at is that it you know essentially it prices people out, right? Just just yeah. the cost the cost of the game and other sports like basketball you know basketball's getting to that level with, with AAU but you know the shoe companies as, as we talked about in prep you know uh, either Adidas or Nike or now Puma signed like some top picks so it seems like they'll mm-hmm. probably be getting into the AAU game uh the shoe companies you know fund that or you know to be good at basketball you don't necessarily have to play AAU you just have to get out there and 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 do your drills put your shots up and and you know and stuff like that whereas in soccer it seems like if you want to be good at, or you want that opportunity to move forward, get that scholarship, you have to play the pay to play system. And it just takes a lot of people out of the game. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's ruined the game. So I guess, you know, the last thing we should talk about is how, like, how do we improve that? Right. No understanding that, you know, soccer seems like it's going to be really in love with this kind of pay to play uh, system like how do we improve on that so we, so we don't you know ruin the game so we can make it diverse um and and attract some really talented folks well i think it's twofold right i think one i think the system is much better now than it has been 
in the last 25 years ago when I played, right? Uh, and it's better in a couple ways that the MLS has these academies. So you have the DC United Academy, you have the Columbus Crew Academy, et cetera. And part of those things, part of their job is to find and develop youth youth teams and youth and run youth a youth system. And so those clubs have 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 the best coaches, they have the best facilities, and they've been able to attract better players. And their cost is much much less. They have a lot of they have scholarships built in. They use some of the money from the MLS to pay for players who can't afford the club memberships. And so that's one strategy. The other strategy is that if you don't live near a club, like if you don't live in one of those what 20 cities or whatnot that have a MLS team, then you are going to have to rely on a local club. And that's still a pay-per-play system. And this is where I think as as um, in basketball, we talk about how to get the shoe companies out of the game. I think soccer probably would prefer that the shoe companies come in. Um, and the shoe companies can do a couple of things. One is that they can offset the cost and they can encourage clubs to really take uh, kids and develop kids who are talented at a younger age, but who may not have the the financial ability to pay, to pay um, these, you know, $10,000 a year, $8,000 a year, uh, $15,000 a year for the club system. I think that's one thing you try to do. Um, two, I think the, the United States uh, Soccer uh, Association is doing a much better job of making coaching better. And so they're requiring a lot more of the leagues to require that the the youth coaches have licenses uh, and their teaching's kind of small sided. So some of this is that the coaching is getting better, Um, but it has to be much more intentional. You have to say that we want, you know, black and Latino players. We want uh, people whose parents are immigrants to the United States. And, and, and we want, we want to, not only we want to welcome them, we want to cultivate that talent as much as we want to cultivate the kid who comes from the middle class from, you know, uh, San Diego or some other place. Right. I think that's, no, that's, that sounds good to me. That, that sounds perfect. And on on that note, man, I think we got to get out of here, but I did not, give my world cup winner and i'm going with france so so hopefully people listen to this before before the world cup um or if they listen after we'll just cut this out so i never said that uh but speaking about france if you want to know more about france and and race and soccer i highly recommend uh there's a documentary called uh less blues on on netflix it's very good talks about about race and ethnicity and religion and soccer in france and so so check that out yes please do and and we are out see you next time next time